When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey everybody, welcome to Literary Disco on Lit Hub Radio, episode 204, Horror. Today, we continue our genre-based season. Each episode of this season, we're diving deep into a particular literary genre, exploring what defines it, what makes it work or not work, interviewing authors, talking to fans, scholars, whomever can help us unlock what it is that makes a genre a genre. And with this, our third episode, we grab a flashlight, head into the dark woods, or that house on the hill, or just maybe the closet in our own room, to creep around the corners, waiting for the tingling sensation in the back of our necks, and we try to find what's in the darkness as we confront the genre of horror. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need. We're Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, our novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hi, guys. Hey! Spooky. Have you ever thought about how the last book club you'll ever need sounds really it does. threatening? I like that. Yeah. Oh, you want? You think you got a book club? Be a shame if something happened to it. <laughs> oh, you want crime? Yeah. That sounds more cool. Yeah, I'm going yeah, horror. Going horror. What is the last book club you'll ever need? Okay, guys. So let's talk about what scares us. Let's talk about. Because this is interesting, you know, coming off of the heels of, of our crime episode where we had to sort of ask the question, why do we read this stuff? Um, and, I, you know, we kind of came down on the side of the, the it could happen to you at any moment realism of crime. But with horror, it's an even bigger question, right? Because you certainly don't need it to always be this could happen to you. It can be fantastical. It can be supernatural. But it needs to be scary. So w- why do we read these things? Um, why do we keep reading them? Because you can always close a book, right? You, you don't you don't have to keep reading. Um, and yet, for me, like I know horror is why I started really reading. It's what made me a reader. Um, so let's talk about what scares us. What uh, have you guys? Do you have a scariest book or a scariest moment in a book? Or have you ever had something? supernatural happened to you julia oh no Todd, have you ever been visited Todd, i thought you were gonna wait at least five minutes <laughs> have you ever been visited by the spectral presence perhaps of a grandfather or okay, a grandmother well, have any of those things ever happened i to think you? <laughs> i i had a small epiphany thinking about this while we were planning this um that i know you guys will like which is that for me I was sort of a creepy child. No shit. Like, I was the horror. So, 
this this is unbelievable to most people who know me now but like i did not talk almost at all wow um i slept walked like crazy you slept? That is creepy i would Ugh. tons so much did you like sit in the corner and, and i would and like whisper scary things yeah i am your uh, no worse i would just <laughs> stand next to my parents bed no um, no <laughs> no and i also had like i mean for a long time and now they, they still do come back like terrible nightmares um so i just had messed up nighttime sleepy creepy child stuff um and so like i i wasn't very fearful but i was scary this, this is my conclusion now <laughs> um and i like question like would you roll up into a sibling's room also and just stand there like a creeper yeah, but they're too little. They don't oh, remember. Oh, oh they I'm remember. The oldest, they so. remember the the great darkness <laughs> that loomed over them when they were four years old, and they claimed to be their sister. Well, and now I've told you guys this, and I plan to write about this. But now my daughter, who's four, um, she has her imaginary friends for like the whole pandemic were the right. kids who live in the mirror. And like every mirror they were in and she would talk to them and yell at them. And now she's moved on from the kids. And this is even creepier. Um, We were driving through Sleepy Hollow, New York. And she was like, oh, I used to live here. (laughs) And has, has, no, no, the kids are over. Um, She's unraveled this long winding story about her sisters, which are, 100% 100% a witch's coven. <laughs> they like lived on a farm. They did all kinds of stuff. And then they, um, a hurricane blew down their farm and they all like sharp things touched them and they died. Wow. Um, so this is the like atmosphere that <laughs> I guess is a part of my family life, past and present. Um, and for me, that stuff was creepy. And so starting to read about creepy things was pretty cathartic, as I know we're going to get into later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I had a book I was obsessed with called The Dollhouse Murders, where like the dolls would move around in oh. the night and like reenact gruesome murders. Yeah. How old were you when you started reading that? Oh, probably like nine. I was I was scared. Very scared of it. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? I mean, so I mean, cause it, it seems like it always starts in childhood, right? It always yeah. starts with wanting to read these. these I mean, for me, like. I, I actually didn't I, I we've talked before about how much like Stephen King was sort of a gateway drug to reading for me um, and mm-hmm. but I don't remember really being scared by Stephen King I think it was more like what I remember being scared of in book form was scary stories to tell in the dark mm-hmm. uh, when I was six or seven you know those sort of folk tales like, mm-hmm. really predictable mm-hmm. but they're still so effective they're still such great stories and those those scary stories. Um, they really are, they're really basic, you know, it's all, it's all about dread. It's all about the setup, you know, like you, you know, you're getting a scary story. The whole point is to scare you the whole point. So you're sitting around a campfire or, you know, your parents are putting you to bed or some, you know, situation where you want to be scared. Uh, so you're setting up the situation of dread and then there's usually repetition, you know, like oh, there's a scratching at the car door, or the high beams are shining mm-hmm. from the car behind you, and it you know it builds and it builds, and you're just waiting for something. And all of those scary stories to tell in the dark, they always end with the worst ending. It's always like, and then it was <laughs> you, and then right. you know you're supposed to literally jump. It's like a physical thing to make you scared and make you know shock you. 
Um, or it has a plot twist that just chills you with its meaning, right? Like the scratching noise was the hook and it was there. Or the hitchhiker that you picked up was actually the dead girl. And it's like, you have to go back and realize like, oh my God, I was talking to a dead person or holding a dead person's hand or, Mm -hmm. um, and so those are the ones that really scared me. The short stories, the really like sort of carnival ride of fiction. By the time I started reading Stephen King, I realized uh, just recently I was talking to a friend whose son had seen The Ring, who's only 11, and he was really freaked out. Um, and his parents are not horror movie people at all. And he, they couldn't understand why he was really scared by it, but then he kept coming back and wanting to talk to them about it and right. kept wanting to see The Ring too. And then he kept, and, and I, I, I started thinking about it and I, I found myself explaining to them that for me, reading Stephen King and then eventually watching horror films was a way to sort of gain access to a grown-up world that was being kept from me. Mm-hmm. That if I knew that if I was willing to go to the scary places that these books promised, I would also get a glimpse into something that was more grown-up. Right, that, right. Know, that, yeah. that there, there, there was the whole world view where people died, people were kidnapped, maybe they that, were That's stuff that you weren't allowed to see. That, oh, exactly, that everyone yeah. protected me from, right? right? But I had an authority over it by being able to read about it or being mm-hmm. able to watch a movie eventually. But really, it was with the reading that was my access point. And... And so I was trying to explain to them, I think he's just curious about the world and and that you should probably nurture this. Don't shelter him from it, because this is in a way for him, his imagination to stretch into these dark corners and and probably learn a lot and and, and become a stronger person, hopefully, you know, become more comfortable and, and less scared. So I found that basically once I started reading Stephen King, I was no longer scared by by books. Yeah. Books could no longer scare. I would... I'd still enjoy them and I would still be intrigued by the sort of, you know, like the, the, the curiosity of like, oh my gosh, what's it going to be the monster? What's going to be the thing? What's going to be the twist? But I don't remember, you know, you'd hear people who were like, kept the shining in the freezer or (laughs) (laughs) I was never like that. Yeah. How about you, Todd? What do you remember anything that actually scared you that you read? Yeah. I mean, there's a couple things, but here's the important thing is that maybe you guys don't always recall is that I didn't learn to read until I was almost 10. The first like scariest thing that I recall was actually an episode of In Search Of, which was a television show hosted by Leonard Nimoy, where they would do episodes like In Search of Bigfoot or In Search of Aliens or whatever. And it was In Search of like the ghost of, of something something manor. And that episode, I'd watched it when I was like eight years old, and they did a, a flash of a ghost who... You know, it was just, you know, some some extra and bad makeup. And that this ghost was so real to me that it scared the crap out of me. And I remember running out of the room and I can still see that ghost in my head. So that was like this thing that was like, oh, well, it's possible. Leonard Nimoy is talking about it. It's got to be a little bit real. But the the book that really did it to me, that, that I actually scared the wits out of me, but kept me coming back even though I'd already read a lot of Stephen King by this point, was actually Pet Cemetery, And I had to go back and figure out why. And so Pet Cemetery came out in 1983, and I literally would not sleep in the same room with it. But the reason why I think it was so profoundly scary to me is that that was the year that my dog died. And so that was the first death that I'd ever actually experienced. And I was so profoundly depressed and sad by the death of my dog, Sam, 
that like I would dream of bringing her back to life. I had these constant dreams where she'd be under my bed and I'd forgotten to feed her. Like it was a real thing for me when I was 12 years old, 11, 12 years old. And then here comes this book that's about like, well, if you love your animal, you can take them back to the pet cemetery and they'll come back. Well, they come back bad. And so I think, I think it was like, oh, I thought this was going to be some wish fulfillment for me. And then it's like, you don't fuck with the dead. <laughs> like, let, let them be. So that, that, that Stephen King book was the one that scared me the most. But objectively, it's like, well, that's sort of a stupid book, right? Like, there's, there's no way that book is actually scary. Yeah, it's silly. <laughs> um, so we really can't talk about scary literature without addressing the... Uh, the godfather of American horror, Edgar Allan Poe. Um, and, you know, Poe actually was one of the first things I remember reading. And, and you know, just in line with me wanting access to adult world, I remember my parents, for some reason we had this list, I guess it was my school published a list of, of books for, for people to read, you know, for your great appropriate stories or books or poems for kids to read. And I was probably in fourth or fifth grade, but I looked at this list and went right to the eighth and ninth grade list. <laughs> and <laughs> what I found was Edgar Allan Poe, The Telltale Heart, mm-hmm. um, The Pit and the Pendulum. And I was, I remember my parent looking at this list and saying, well, what's that? What, what are those stories? And my parents being like, oh, well, those are really scary. And that became my obsession. And I tracked down everything Edgar Allan Poe and read everything I could get my hands on, which led me to his poetry. And But it was it was those scary, creepy, buried alive stories that mm-hmm. got me hooked. Um, and it turns out Julia knew somebody who is somewhat of a Poe expert. Yeah. So in my time at the Mark Twain house, um, we were friends with other historic houses. We the house. We're friends with our houses. That's how that works. Uh, Jeff Jerome is, he says, don't call him an expert, but he is like the Poe guy, um, especially in the Baltimore area where the Poe house is. Um, So he was the Poe house curator from 1978 all the way to 2014. And he's also been a tour guide at Poe's grave site since 1976 and is to this day. So he knows everything about Poe. Um, and is really like the steward of his legacy. So we decided to talk to him about it. We got EAP in the house tonight. Edgar Allan Poe, America's favorite anti-transcendentalist. We're taking this back, way back, 19th century style. Who's that? Who's that? Rapping. Who's that? Rapping at my chamber door. Mr. Mr. Raven. All up in my grill like nevermore. <laughs> Kick it once upon a midnight dreary Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the 
we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We are so excited to be talking to Jeff today. Um, he is a Poe. Well, we already talked. Don't call him an expert. Um, but he's, he's a, I'm going to say, a Poe representative. Um, and I'm really excited to have Jeff on today because, um, as our, the listeners of our podcast know, I worked at the Mark Twain House for a long time. Um, and all historic author houses have to have an opinion on the other uh, historic author homes. So, Do you guys play um, softball Jeff- and, and talk shit to each other also? <laughs> I mean, yeah, Jeff, Jeff would know more about that than me. Um, but, uh, you know, Poe and Twain, uh, they, uh, the houses had a relationship and, Ooh. you know, basically both, both sites were, um, always plagued by drama. So <laughs> that's, that's how I, that's how I know Jeff. Um, and we've really never had a historic house person on the podcast, Jeff. We mostly have authors and, um, other folks who are writing. So I'm actually also really excited to introduce you to Todd and writers so they can get a real flavor of the world that um, we live in. Um, so thank you so much for yeah. coming on. Thanks. Um, Thanks for coming, Jeff. We appreciate it. Sure. I would love to hear just right off the bat, um, what is your relationship to Poe? How did you step into the Poe world and where are you in this world now? Well, that I, I get that question all the time. And each time I answer it, it's a little bit different. But I started being involved with Poe way back in the early 60s when the Vincent Price, Roger Corman films came out. And I was just a little kid at that time. And uh, you probably don't realize this, but at that time period, late 50s, early 60s, they did have a movie rating system. And Poe's films, the Roger Corman films, had four they usually had four bloody X's, which meant no one under 16 was allowed to see the film. And at that time period, there was a belief that if, if a child saw horror films, they would turn out to be a juvenile delinquent. So they had to keep people like me out of these films. But I managed somehow to get into the local movie theater and there I was, this young kid, looking at Vincent Price up on the big screen. And I just was like, this is unbelievable. Now, I was also thrilled with all kinds of horror films. The Mummy, Werewolf, you know, D- Dracula. I loved all those films. And in Baltimore, there was this late night show on Saturday night called Shock Theater. And they had this guy dressed as a ghoul, whatever. And he would introduce all of these old uh, you know, 1930s, 1940s horror films. And my parents, uh, much to their credit, allowed me to sit up and watch these films. So um, I've always been uh, thrilled and excited about seeing these old horror films. And, and, and that was my first introduction to Edgar Allan Poe as a little kid. Uh, fast forward to 1976 and um, uh, my interest was in other places. I was a photographer, a writer. I did many things in my life. And I was hired by this man who was working at the Edgar Allan Poe house. He needed a photographer. 
and the mayor was coming to visit the Poe grave and the catacombs there, and he needed someone to take publicity photos. So I was the guy. I stepped into that graveyard and into those catacombs, and I was hooked. It, it rekindled my interest in uh, Edgar Allan Poe. I'm curious, has, has there been a consistent Poe fan, like a certain type of person? Um, because, I mean, obviously, he's one of the most popular authors of all time. And, and so for in a lot of ways, maybe this is there's an easy answer. No, because they're all the same. But I'm curious, in your time at the house and having spent all this time with Poe, have you been able to develop a sort of like uh, archetypal Poe fa fan? No. They come in all shapes and sizes, ages, yeah. ethnic, you know. Um, wow. People, again, that's one of the more common questions. What kind of people like Edgar Allan Poe? Are they all goth? <laughs> And right. live in cemeteries. Everyone's showing up looking like Marilyn Manson. <laughs> yeah, you know, we I had that, but to a very small degree. But they it really there's no one classification I can say, oh, we usually have this kind of person. Young people uh in middle school, they they are attracted to him. What's so interesting is I remember being 15 and experiencing Poe at sort of a higher level. Like you had, I had read him when I was maybe in seventh grade, but then in eighth or then in fifteen when I was a freshman in high school, we did a class, and I was like, someone thinks like I think, you know. I I, I remember reading <laughs> Cask of Amontillado when I was fifteen years old, and, and thinking, oh, I'm not the only person who has these kinds of fantasies. This guy has them too, <laughs> and. In a in a deeply <laughs> fucked up way, it was actually sort of devising like, weird ways to kill people. Yeah, like in a deep and fucked up way, it was sort of like, oh, it's not just me and Stephen King. There's this guy also. <laughs> when you look at the images of Poe, it fits that classic misconception of Poe as being the dark, brooding author. I mean, come to find out, it's just the way they took photographs <laughs> in the time period. I mean, but but I mean, Edgar Allan Poe. When I saw that name. You know, the, the fall of the House of Usher, Vincent Price by Edgar Allan Poe. You know, I, the name just mm -hmm. stuck with me. But if it was Joe Smith or something, you know, it didn't have the same effect. Jeff, can we talk for a second about the the, the reputation, the sort of um, what like what you just you just sort of offhandly said the that he has this brooding, you know, madman yeah. drunk reputation. I, I I'd love to hear more about that because you know I, I I know that that's clearly not true, but it still exists in the popular imagination in so many ways. Can you talk about how that started and and where it's gone over the years? Well, it's 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 a long story. I'll try to keep it condensed. Yeah, but. Um, Poe didn't have a very happy life. I mean, there's no denying that. Uh, he wanted to be a writer. He didn't want to do anything else. He devoted his entire life to being a writer. And writers didn't make any money in that time period, but he persisted. Of course, he was also a literary critic, editor, publisher, and, and sometimes he was hired to tutor women how to write poetry. Uh, but But... Writing short stories, that's what he wanted to do. And he had a problem with alcohol. There's no way you can get around that. But this idea of Poe drinking and, and stumbling in the gutter and, and writing his stories while he was high on LSD is just stupid. And it really, to this day, it really gnaws at me when people go, oh, yeah, he took opium and he would have these opium dreams and he would write these stories under a drug-induced. I'm going, shut up, you know? 
you know, it's a real insult to Poe. Because one thing I discovered with Poe was that every sentence, every paragraph, every word, every punctuation marks mark means something in his stories. You take something out and you left a big hole in the story. And the idea that he would write these things drinking from a bottle going, oh, Casca Montiotto, i got to write about that, man. You know, he was also a literary critic. His nickname was the Tomahawk Man because of his brutal, slashing reviews. When he reviewed a book, if it was awful, hey, he didn't mince any words. He would come right out and said, this is a stinker. Don't even bother with it. And, of course, if you wrote that story that he just called a stinker, you were upset. And, and the feeling was, who is this guy, Edgar Allan Poe, from the South, you know, coming up here to New England? His parents were actors. Ooh, you know, what is he coming up here and telling us New England writers that what we're doing is awful? So he created a lot of animosity with these other writers, with his, with his vicious reviews, and they were hilarious. However, if he reviewed a story, and say Todd wrote a story and he reviewed it, and he said, you know, this guy, Todd... Goldberg, you know, this isn't the greatest story, but I see talent, and I predict that if this man, Todd, persists in writing, that he could become one of our most famous authors. So he recognized talent, and he would also praise that talent. But if he came across a story where it was just pure puffery, he ripped it to shreds. And the, the thing is, he was always right. It was, it was always a, a terrible story. And he was one of the first critics that acknowledged women writers, uh, but he, he didn't spare them either. So he created a lot of enemies. So when he died unexpectedly in Baltimore, one of his enemies, the Reverend Rufus Griswold, wrote this really vicious and nasty obituary about Poe. He created situations in Poe life, Poe's life that never existed. He actually took a quote from a fictional story where the author is describing this insane man who would walk around in storms, cursing the skies and foaming at the mouth. And he would say, Poe was like this guy, you know. And after a while, he would remove the quotation marks. So when people read that, their image was Edgar Allan Poe walking, foaming at the mouth, cursing at people. And, 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 and Griswold didn't stop there. He wrote the first Poe biography where he forged letters in Poe's handwriting. Just adding to this character assassination that he created with the obituary. He even insinuated that Poe and his, his beloved aunt, Maria Clem, were involved romantically. I mean, you're hitting the bottom of the barrel. Why were they such, uh, uh, why they hate each other so much that even after his death, this guy would be like, well, now it's time to get to work. Like, what was their beef? Well, we'll see, Griswold, respected Poe as a critic. He knew that as a critic, Poe was very well respected. People listened to him. And he sort of winked at Poe going, I, I just written a new book, Poets and Poetry of America. You know, hey, listen, wink, wink. If you give me a good review, hey, I'll do the same for one of your books. Poe hated that. And Poe sort of said, oh, hey, you know. So he did a review of the book and gave it a lukewarm review and he said basically that Griswold and, and Corp used writers that really don't even bother. You know, they weren't worth the paper that the military was published on. And, but then he said, you know, th th it was a worthwhile piece. I'm glad Rufus Griswold wrote it. Well, Griswold was furious. He was expecting something like, oh, this is the, this is the, the best 
collection of poems and, and, and poets of America. You got to buy this book. That's what he was expecting. Not this lukewarm, well, you know, it's okay. I'm glad he wrote it. What do you think, Jeff, is the reason, um, above all others, that Poe has persisted where others have fallen into the, the dustbin of history as, as writers of genre fiction? Well, I think Poe did not write about werewolves or vampires or Frankenstein monsters. He wrote about things that could happen to you. You could be buried alive. And people mm. were buried alive accidentally by doctors and family members who couldn't tell when someone was dead. And I, I sometimes I like to envision Poe when he lived in Baltimore, sitting up in his attic going, gee, what am I going to write about? I'm writing poetry, but not going anywhere with that. Maybe short stories. So he did what a lot of writers do, still do, open up the newspaper, looking for something that would catch his eye and he read stories about people that were being mm. buried alive. And the light bulb went off, going, hey, wait a minute. Maybe I'm going in the wrong direction. So it was right here in Baltimore that he wrote his first true horror story called Berenice or Berenice, depending on what pronunciation you want. And this was a, a, a gruesome story of, of obsession, insanity, premature burial, mutilation. It was a fun story. But the public didn't think it was so much fun. People complained to the publisher and Edgar uh, uh, wrote an apology. And if I may read real quick what he wrote in response to the complaints oh, about do. Berenice. Yes. He said, the history of all magazines shows plainly that those which have attained celebrity were indebted for it to articles similar in nature to Berenice. To be appreciated, you must be read. Those are important words. Mm. And these things are sought after with They are articles which find their way into periodicals and into the newspapers. In respect to Berenice, I, I allow that it approaches the very verge of bad taste. Even Poe said, I went too far. Wow. Uh, but I will not sin again so egregiously. What he was saying was, obviously, he was writing for the public. People wanted to read right. about these things. And that's all I was doing was giving them what they wanted. And did he keep his promise? Of course not. We <laughs> wanted more. Kept we writing. Kept giving me. people what right. they want. <laughs> On one hand, we were going, this is awful. This is disgusting. This is horrific. But we want more. He gave it to us. Yeah. He did not, like I said, write about vampires. He wrote about things that could happen to you. You could be buried alive. They had horrific murders in that time period. We were incredibly superstitious. We were, we, the public, were obsessed with these topics. It's important to note at this point that Poe tried to deviate from the horror aspect. He wrote comedies. He wrote early science fiction. He, he wrote about- He created uh, the detective, space the detective genre. Yeah. Exactly. Adventure stories. Uh, he wrote poetry. So he tried, it was like throwing the spaghetti at the wall to see what would stick. But it reminds me of in, in The Godfather, I think part two, where Michael Corleone says, I try to get out of the business, but they keep pulling <laughs> me back in. That's what we did to Poe. We kept pulling him back. We didn't care about his adventure stories. They were popular, but when you start talking about being buried alive, murder, torture, beating hearts, black cats, people ate it up. <laughs> continued writing horror stories, not because he was obsessed with death and darkness. 
He was probably one of the nicest guys you'd ever want to meet. Jeff, was, I, have a, I have a real a, quick, I have a real quick question that might be an easy answer. Is, is that true that there was nothing supernatural in any of? Didn't he never wrote about ghosts even, or everything is sort of grounded in reality? Well, well, I don't know about reality. <laughs> sure. Uh, but I was thinking, like Telltale Heart, he's hearing the heartbeat, but it, there's the there's an interpretation that's right, all in his madness. mind, right? That he's going mad. Yeah. So people go right. mad and they hallucinate or they see things or hear mm-hmm. things. But I'm, I'm just realizing, I'm trying to remember: is there really never a, a, a monster, like an actual creature or supernatural no. being? Wow, no. that's so interesting. So I'm wondering: uh, is there a cons- is there what what is the the horror behind the horror what 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 is there a consistent theme or consistent thing that poe like that that trumped all of the other you know subjects like you know it, it was it madness what what was where what are we afraid of in poe's work mm-hmm. well i think that changes with each decade mm-hmm. but in poe's mm-hmm. time period it was being buried alive mm-hmm. uh, i mean what what a horror and he used that theme in many of his stories because it, it could happen to you. Someone could make a mistake and bury you alive. Hmm. Uh, and, and it, I mean, Poe is famous for reading the newspaper and taking topics out of that. Uh, he didn't write about werewolves, Frankenstein. He wrote about things that could happen to you, and people could relate to that. And I think that's the one thing in Poe's time period that really captured the public was, you know, that happened to Uncle Bob. He got buried alive. Or I heard about this. I heard about that. You could be murdered. And like you said, they had horrific murders in that time period. Right. And I remember reading, first reading about the Telltale Heart, how people would read that and they would look down at the floor because that's where people kept their money, their mm. treasures, beneath the floorboards. Okay? And I can just see Poe thinking, gee, where am I going to put that heart mm-hmm. and the body parts? Oh, I know. And the floorboards, because people can relate to them, because that's mm-hmm. where they keep their money. Right. And I can just see people reading the Telltale tell Heart, looking down at the mm-hmm. floor, you know, going, mm-hmm, all right. So <laughs> I, I think he wrote about things that really could happen, and they were realistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, people going crazy. Uh, and I think that's one reason why people in his time period really were attracted to his stories. And even today... You're talking about the middle school students. They love Poe. And that's when they teach Poe, at least here in the Maryland area, is during middle school. And I would love going to the schools and talking to the students. And it was like, yeah, man, getting buried alive. Man, I wish that happened no, to me. No. I said, no, 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 <laughs> no. That's a hard no. And it was just that mystique of Poe. Also, with the young people, digressing here for a moment, uh, Poe didn't have a very happy childhood. He was, uh, uh, his parents died when, when he was very young. He was taken in by a wealthy tobacco merchant, never legally adopted, who verbally abused Poe. Uh, and while his, uh, his stepmom was dying, this guy was out having affairs with women, having children. And Poe knew this, and he couldn't understand, like, how, how can you do that? And, and he, he set Poe up for failure, sent him to college, mm-hmm. but gave him no money for tuition, and when, when his first wife died, he got rid of Poe, kicked him out completely. So unfortunately, I think many young people today look at that and they go, gee, that's just like my home. You know, mm-hmm. my stepdad doesn't like me. Or, or you know, my, my stepdad or stepmom, they, they're always yelling at me, you know, telling me what to do. And they could relate to that, to Poe in that respect. 
Uh, also, Poe wrote about uh, spousal abuse, animal abuse, alcohol abuse, and unfortunately, these are things that many people, young people, see mm. in their home today. Mm -hmm. And I think with young people, they see that and say, Poe's mm. like me. You know, he, he, he suffered like I suffered with my stepdad. And, you know, my stepdad used to beat my dog or used to hit me. So I think they, they, they could relate to Poe in that respect, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. You know, what's also interesting, though, too, is that so much of what he writes about is madness. And, of course, in the 1800s, <clears throat> there, was no, there was no Paxil or Xanax or whatever. And, but there was still, you know, people were still bipolar in the 1800s. They just didn't have a name for it. Um, and so this mm -hmm. fear of being one of these people that descends into madness, that must have mm -hmm. been a, a, a real, particularly upper class madness, um, that must have been a real concern for the people that were reading his stories. Like, oh, gosh, I've got Aunt Joe who hasn't left the house in 25 years. <laughs> well, you also have superstition, the evil eye, for example. And black cats, they're all witches, uh, the narrator said in the story. And I've known people in my life that had some, something wrong with their eye. And you, you want to look at the eyes, right. but you don't. And I remember my grandmother uh, from Poland talking about the evil eye. You never look at someone in their eyes because whatever they have, you're going to get it. And this is nothing new. In post-time period, people were superstitious. Mm -hmm. And if you had uh, something wrong with your eye, cross-eyed or something, the evil eye, they're going to get you if you look at their eye. Poe is capitalizing on these superstitions. Well, and it, of course, the cool thing is that Poe set the, um, the template for someone like Stephen King, who writes straight horror, but he also writes detective fiction and sci-fi and fantasy um, and children's and... Uh, pop-up mm -hmm. books and everything. You know, Poe was doing what Stephen po King... Take it, po po Poe took it to King. another level, though. He also added poetry into the mix. Right. You know, like... Mm -hmm. yeah. Stephen King's yes. not writing poetry. <laughs> yes. No. What rhymes with Carrie? Um, but but it, it you can see, though, that um, there wasn't a margin that could hold him in, and that must have been... For him, that must have been um, spiritually enervating, you would think. Um, but if you can't earn money, also it means like, oh, God, I got to try something else to, to pay the rent. Mm -hmm. Well, he made very little money from his stories and he, he got ripped off. He got cheated by the publishers. They knew his financial situation was was uh, tense and they took advantage of him. Not only Pope, but there were other writers in that time period that really got cheated and ripped off by the publishers. So that's so consistent. That's why he tried to do poetry. <laughs> <laughs> Not much. Yeah, that's, uh, they're keeping that right. one OG. <laughs> yeah, he tried to get his own newspaper. Uh, he tried to make money being a critic and tutoring women. Um, so the idea of Poe being this drunk, alcoholic, dope addict, wandering the gutters of Baltimore, broke, no home—that's complete nonsense, twaddle, as as I sometimes say. <laughs> He really reached out to try to do other things, but but we wanted blood, and he gave it to Ooh, us. There, I love there it. There you go. Edgar Allan Poe, y'all. Listen to me flow, y'all.
Yo, it's Edgar Allan Poe with the flow so poetic Melancholy wordsmith style so phonetic Got a raven on my shoulder, gothic thematics Demonic alcoholic, multi-syllabic It's a habit, take a look and I'm sure you'll find That the mechanics of rap are the mechanics of rhyme And when we analyze the rhythm of the units to the meter Long, short, short, long, doesn't matter, look at either And I am is two syllables on stress, stress Which the words insane explain and delight all express A trochee on the other hand goes stressed, unstressed Words like coffee, crazy giant, so prepare to be impressed and Words like tambourine, cavalier, and Marianne, and by that I mean to unstressed stress syllables in succession. That's our first lesson. Okay, get any questions? Flow like Poe. I'm going hard on that tetrameter. Flow like Poe. I'm going hard on that tetrameter. Flow like Poe. I'm going hard on that tetrameter. This is Lit Hop 101 with MC Edgar Allan Poe. Flow like Poe. I'm going hard on that tetrameter. Flow like Poe. I'm going hard on that tetrameter. Flow like Poe. I'm going hard on that tetrameter. If you don't know, now you know. It's really interesting to hear, you know, obviously like Edgar Allan Poe looms so large in the popular imagination now still as this, you know, figure, wrongfully so, it turns out, because of the whole Griswold backstory. Right, my God. Um, how how have we what, lived our entire lives without knowing about that? Yeah, but the, 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 the weird thing to me about what Jeff said, or the interesting fact that I had never considered, was that Poe was writing horror because it was popular. Mm-hmm. And that even in his time, he was, you know... he. he Jeff talked about throwing spaghetti on the wall and seeing what sticks like that. He kept people kept wanting that from him, that that the reason Poe is the Poe we know and love to this day is because that's what got a response. That's what got published. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was also just so fascinating that he didn't really write about ghosts and monsters and supernatural things. Uh, but he wrote about what was scary for the culture at the time that was realistic, that was being buried alive, or that somebody <laughs> could double cross you and bury you alive. You. <laughs> or, you know, madness. Right. You know, the, the idea that you could go insane at any moment, or that the insane person, uh, or that the person down the street from you could go insane and chop somebody up. I mean, that is terrifying. Yeah, it's It seems like, you know, we're always examining horror is always examining the fringes of our comfort right like what's just beyond our knowledge if we if we don't understand madness then that's what we're scared of um you know in the 20th century early 20th century everything was ghost visitations but then after like 1950 it becomes alien abductions right right? (laughs) and the same thing it's and or like you have the rise of mass media with television and movies and suddenly the zombie is introduced right right? like that's something to be scared of or if you're if you're if you have fears of nuclear waste godzilla is born right like the the monsters keep changing with the time um or what you're scared of keeps changing as the knowledge keeps expanding Um, and and the interesting thing of course is that when you get inundated with it it stops being scary. So, like, for instance, when the New York Times, in the middle of the pandemic, perhaps you guys remember this, the New York Times announced, hey, aliens are probably real. Governments had all this proof forever. FYI. And everyone was like, oh, great. Okay, so what? And, like, this is the thing that had scared us for our entire lives. And then they're like, yeah, it's true. And everyone's like, yeah, it's fine. Whatever. Take me. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing scares me less than aliens. Yeah. Just throwing that out there. But I think thinking about Poe, like going back to Poe, it's like there's also for me the ultimate Poe is the telltale yeah. heart. And it's like the whole idea of like the heart of that story is what is real and what's right. not real. You know, what's in his mind and what's real. And that is that's American mm-hmm. horror, you know, like are ghosts real, are aliens real? Is sixth sense, what's real, what's right. not real, you know even 
crossing into other genres. And so, like, this bordering on truth is essential to our understanding of what's scary. And that's why I think something like um, the Cask of Amontillado has withstood the test of time, I think, better than almost all Poe, because it's both a revenge fantasy and a fear. It's like, oh, yeah, you did me wrong. I'm going to bury you in a wall. And then it's like, oh, I did someone wrong. I hope they don't bury me in a wall. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember reading Cask of Amontillado for the first time and being like, well, that's something I want to do for the rest of my life is I want to make that feeling. Um, so, I mean, j- just fascinating guy because he he knows so much, but it, it doesn't his his vast knowledge and all the secrets that he told us just now don't change the effect of the work on me. And I think a lot of times when you learn about an artist, it changes the effect of the art on you, um, which you know m- might be you know a good way for us to talk about someone like Shirley Jackson. Yeah, so Shirley Jackson is somebody who it's very hard to pin down why you're so scared. Uh, <laughs> you're reading stories about happy-go-lucky towns with little boys picking up stones, and by the end you find that to be the weirdest, scariest, most uncanny thing you've ever read. So we actually went to grad school with someone who is not just a, a Shirley Jackson expert, but she wrote a book that now people might confuse with reality. Um, our friend Susan Scarf Merrill wrote the novel Shirley, which also became the movie Shirley, which came out a couple years ago, uh, starring Elizabeth Moss and uh, Michael Stolbark. Um, Sh- Susan Scarf Merrill is a professor of creative writing um, at Stony Brook, Southampton. She directs the Southampton Writers Conference. She's just a fantastic writer of fiction in general. And she wrote a fictional adaptation of Shirley Jackson's life that is in itself a domestic horror story. And so we thought we'd sit down with Susie for a little bit and, and talk about Shirley Jackson's um, enduring presence in American horror. And before we sat down with Susie, we read her two recommendations, which were The Lottery, the classic story, and The Summer People. So how do you think that Shirley Jackson changed horror or set up horror for its present moment? You know, like where does she fall in our our American sense of the genre? She's so firmly in the kind of gothic part of horror in the part where there's a woman at the center and she's haunted or haunting or crazy or hysterical or imagining. And she's really playing into um, a kind of, in a very loving way, into the um, into the sort of more misogynistic strain of, um, of horror from, you know, the fall of the House of Usher to Rebecca to, you know, um, Northanger Abbey. I mean, the, you know, the, she's really playing into that idea that um, at the center of, of horror is a woman with a, you know, kind of a, um, a an evil core or something. And, and, um, and she's turning it on its head. So we have a very sympathetic feeling to, um, 
you know, we hate Rebecca. And, you know, and I can't remember the name of the woman in Northanger Abbey right now, but, you know, we end up feeling like she's a, a fool, you know, for thinking what she thinks. And, and um, Roderick Usher's sister is, you know, the source of everything, you know, she's at the core of the haunting of the house. And what happens with Shirley is that um, the, the women themselves are equally victims and, um, and perpetuators. And I think that that was true in Shirley's life as well. So circling back to those fun housewife tales that often those stories are really not happy stories, but she jollies them up. You know, the, there's one called the day we all had flu or the week we all had flu. And, and she's like doing all the housework and she's sicker than anybody else. And she's cleaning up Stanley's cigarette butts all over the house. And it's just like, I don't know, it's very funny and you relate to it, but you also, if you think about it, it doesn't feel great, you know? I mean, I haven't read all that much of her work, but just, even if you take like the lottery and the summer, uh, summer people, like for me, it's so hard to pinpoint what I'm scared of. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's this, it's more just this general anxiety that like something, you know, obviously the lottery ends and you're like, oh, I knew, I knew something bad was going to happen. But, but I, I, you know, I wonder if you can, if, you know, having read all of her work and like, you know, what was the monster for Shirley Jackson? Because I mean, she did, she redirected it away from like the crazy woman or whatever the old trope used to be. You know, is is there a definable like overall monster that she was always kind of writing about or circling as the thing to be scared of? Or is it just this uncanny sense? Well, you know, the, the old saying, if it's not bacterial or uh, if it's not biological or something, it's maternal. I mean, she obviously had a <laughs> yeah, she had a very bad relationship with her mother, but um, but I will say, I th I think about her. She does this really slick thing in almost everything, everything. But in those two stories in particular, there's this wonderful way that she opens up the world, and everything is familiar and um, a, a little pastoral. Everything's positive. But if you go back and you look at the opening of the lottery, I think A.M. Holmes actually did a, a wonderful piece somewhere about the stones in the beginning of the lottery and how the children are making the pile of stones. And the first time you read it, probably, I mean, I can't even remember when that would have been. I'm sure the first time you read it, you go, oh, nice, look, they're making a pile of stones. How sweet. So yeah. And in the summer people, everything's so nice in the store and the, and the, uh, the wife is getting treated so well. And then, then there's this like little turn. Something is a little bit awry. You have all, you go from this beautiful pastoral scene to a little bit of backstory and history. And then all of a sudden, Tessie Hutchinson runs up and you're like, shit, Tessie, you're late. It's bad. And you don't know why. Well, and it's also that, that subjective voice that she uses. So She's repeating dialogue over and over and over again in Summer People. She repeats dialogue in the lottery a lot, too. And that repetition, using that subjective voice, is disconcerting because it's not real. Like, you're like, oh, normal people don't sound like this. What's going on? Have these people been possessed? Are they pod people? And when when 
when a bunch of people start saying the same thing to you over and over again, that's highly disconcerting. <laughs> like, you need help. You need help. You yeah. need help. You need help. <laughs> that's such a great observation because I think that's also true in Hill House. It's also true in Castle. I mean, that she really uses repetition a lot. I'm, and I never think of it as, um, as building um, scariness, but you're right, it's building strangeness. I think that's what Jackson really nails is um, she was really well-read in psychology and you know Freud and Jung and everybody. And um, she really understands that people are gonna serve their own interests in some yeah. fundamental way. Well, that's so Yeah, that's so, that's cool. so true. Yeah. Not cool in a good way. And even details like yeah. the town in the lottery, like they're arguing about whether to change the box. You know, like that's that's <laughs> right. the big debate. It's like, well, we can't, should we change the box? Should we not change the box? We change from scraps of wood to pieces of paper when really the debate is why the fuck are we doing this? Right. And this is, you know, and the lottery story is really, you know, it's about a planting ritual hundreds of years after people are planting. It's about, you know, it's about a, you know, lottery in June, corn be heavy soon. I mean, these guys aren't necessarily growing corn, you know, but they are, they are doing the habit. They're doing the unsought habit. Yeah, it seems like so much of her work, or you know, especially the the, the two stories, the, the lottery and summer people, are it's about convention, right? And like the way the way convention, we struggle against it, and then it also has this force of its own that just keeps moving, you know. And like in summer people, it's the opposite, you know. They break convention, they stay after they're, they're supposed to leave, and it's like, the, and then you're just like. Don't do that. Just stick with the rules. Right. You know, don't break the rules. And then, of course, everything starts falling apart, and you don't even know why. I and mean, by the story ends, you're like, well, "Are they going to get murdered? Are they going to die in the storm? Are they just going to starve to death? Are they just getting old? Like, what is happening here?" But it's so unsettling because they broke the convention. Whereas in the lottery, it's like, you know, the convention is the killing killing factor, right? Mm -hmm. It's like uh, the right. individuals are sort of rallying against, or trying to break free, and it's like, no, 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 no. We just got to kill one of you every well, year. Well, but isn't it also like that the horror is um, that we, without margins, we don't have a society, right? And so if we set these laws and we set these rules and we set these traditions, we have these ceremonies, without those things, we don't have a society. And if one of them breaks, it's like when, when we legalize gay marriage and the conservatives are like, oh, now you're going to be able to marry your dog. You're like, like <laughs> there, there's all... Right. I mean, I love I love Rube Goldberg. She's adorable. Um, but that's that's that sort of thinking. Like, oh, if you break one convention, if you don't do one ceremony, the end result is the thing furthest from that actual act, and so therefore we have to keep doing this thing. That's always been for me when I read Shirley Jackson, the root of that horror, which is like, if if you go against society. It's Armageddon. We have we have nothing left. It, everything's going to collapse. I mean, I love those stories next to each other because they are the same story, but bass backwards. You know, they are um, because you're right. The lottery is really about we must stick to the tradition, and 
or, you know, and do the things exactly as they are. And then the summer people, which is, I think, written two years later, is really, and if you don't do it, right. look what happens. And, um, and in many ways, I mean, in, in many ways, the stories are really making the same point. And it's funny that at the end of the summer, people, you know, certainly at the end of the lottery, you know exactly what's happening to Tessie. But at the end of the, the summer, people, you just know it's a disaster and whatever is going to happen, it's right. not good, you know. Um, but in both cases, yeah, don't break the rules, except she right. wants you to break the rules. Right. She's saying right. break the rules. Right. Because, I mean, if she wanted to celebrate the power of rule breaking, right, like there would be uh, a a hero breaking the rules and and succeeding in some way or, or, you know, in a lot of ways, like her her stories would be more sort of traditional. What's so unsettling about them is that there isn't an easy answer. It's it's she's more interested in sort of showcasing this struggle. And that is terrifying and unsettling. I think part of the art of the story is getting back to what you were saying a while ago, Susie, which is like. Tess Hutchinson, who is killed, she's pretty freaking annoying. Like, you're not <laughs> invited to, like, right. root for her. You I know what I mean? Tess you're invited. So petty. <laughs> yeah, and she's being yeah. shrill, and she's, yeah. you know, not, like, it's not fair, feels whiny. Yeah. But yeah. Jackson is inviting us to say, even when the most irritating person is calling truth to power, like, it's still true, you know? Right. Um, and it's just such a bold way of of writing the story, you know, is not only is she going to set is Jackson going to sacrifice a character, but she's going to sacrifice an unlikable character um, yeah. and force you to reckon with that, too. Did she consider herself a horror writer or did she get pigeonholed because of the success of the lottery and and it just became or was she consciously entering a genre and really interested mm-hmm. in it? So when she was writing The Haunting of Hill House, she was absolutely aware of ghost stories. Um, She was absolutely reading ghost stories and thinking about ghost stories and thinking about haunting and houses and, you know, Mm -hmm. all of that stuff. Um, They they say that the the book that preceded it, uh, We've Always Lived in the Castle, was really about feeling very isolated in the Bennington community. And um, it's not horror, even though it begins with the poisoning of an entire family with a a mushroom. Um, Amanita phylloides, I think, I don't know if I pronounced that right. But, um, but and and everything that comes from everything that comes from that is what the book is about. Um, The book she was working on, uh, when she died, was about a, 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 kind of a mystic almost who runs away from her house and marriage and stuff. So she's definitely working kind of um, uh, next to adjacent to horror. But I think she's really, and I I don't want to be too heavy handed about this point, but, you know, what Julia was talking about, you know, life is got a lot of horror in it. And I think what she was not afraid to do was be next Mm. to horror. But do I think that she thought of herself as a horror writer per se? No, I think she was just a literary novelist, a literary writer. But I can't, I can't say that I know that. And I think of her as a gothic writer. I think of her as someone who is um, 
really delving into the complexity of being female in the world. Yeah. And the strangeness, the unca- uncanniness of that. And she, right. you know, I, obviously her um, her influence has trickled down a- across both literary fiction and genre fiction in really weird ways. Like there's no Kelly Link, for instance, without Shirley Jackson, but there's also right. no like Paul yeah. Tremblay without Shirley Jackson, I you know? know. And yeah. and they're completely yeah. different kinds of, of horror or speculative writers, but they both are from that same tradition. Um, and so it's really unusual to see a writer influence not just like one branch of a tree, but an entire genre. I mean, even Stephen Graham Jones is, is hugely influenced by Shirley Jackson. Totally. And, and Victor, Victor Laval. Laval. Yeah, I exactly. Mean, All of these sort of... Yeah. I also just think the fact that her stuff keeps yeah. getting remade into movies and TV right. shows, it's like, oh, right, it, you know, it, it well, lasts. And I think like, it's because... For whatever reason, she I tapped into the right thing. because the monsters are us, you know? And, and that's always the most yes. horrible thing is when you realize that, you know, there's no greater horror than what humans do to each other. You don't, you don't need to have a giant fucking spider living under the city. I think she really just understands that, um, unlike Anne Frank, who believed that on the whole people were good at heart, despite, you know, what happened to her. I think Jackson really understands that each and every one of us is capable of really um, serious wrongdoing. Do you guys agree with Susie? Are are humans essentially good or are humans essentially bad, Julia? <laughs> really? I think good. I do. I really do. Yeah, I mean, I love Shirley Jackson so much and I love... Okay, I think society is bad, but people are good. So power um, is bad. People are good. That's kind of where I land. I kind of agree. I agree completely. And I think that this <sighs> is... The- why I like horror so much or why I like dark things so much is that because uh, fundamentally I'm a pretty optimistic, you know, positive person about this, the state of humanity. And then when you read these books, it's like a glimpse into the alternative possibility, right? It's, 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 it's getting too close to that stove that says, no, people are truly awful. The reality is really awful. Um, And I think that that's why I keep reading it over and over again. Wow. Ryder, I feel like we're unlocking. Yes, we're completely aligned. Like, I think what is interesting about horror is the pressure, you know, the pressure on good people. Like, you can't be good. The pressure is too much to to do the right thing or to... And it's not even pressure on people. It's not even pressure on people. It's pressure on reality, right? Right. <laughs> like it's it's reality testing in the in like it's when you're reading a true horror book. It's uh, it's not just saying like I mean sometimes it's just there's a bad person with a hatchet out there, but oftentimes it's there's an undying force. There's a ghost. There's a supernatural force that's really the the world is fundamentally a terrifying, dark, scary, you know, demon infested place. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, and mm-hmm. to go back a little, The Shining, it's such a good example. Like, if you ask me, is Jack Torrance inherently right. evil? No. You know, like, I still believe it's the hotel. <laughs> right. You know, and that's, like, the perfect, perfect see, metaphor I, I for all horror sort of, for In me. a way that 
like the the comedian Eddie Izzard once said, like, you can't conceptualize in your mind a Pol Pot or a Hitler. Like they they kill six million people, and it's hard for you to even imagine like the mind that could create that, right? But someone kills one person, and you're like, they're the devil. They're they're the little like. Like, one person doing a terrible thing is almost more frightening to the common person than genocide on a massive scale. Whereas well, it's a story for, you can wrap your head around. Right. right. Mm-hmm. It's too close to you. It's too but close see, to you. But see, as a Jew, yeah. I think, oh, no, no, no. I can understand them coming to kill all of us. Because it's an existential fear I've had my entire life. My entire mm-hmm. life, I have been scared that I'm going to have to fight mm-hmm. on the streets. Mm-hmm. That they're going to come for us. Because eventually they always do. The mob always comes for the Jews. Um, so just FYI, prepare to take up arms. But but that's a childhood fear that is born out of my DNA. Mm-hmm. You know, like this notion that horror is about the unexplainable, it makes sense when you think about it from a child's point of view, right? Like we don't have that experience. And right. so, therefore, everything seems possible, right? Like, there's there could be something under the bed. You don't know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. go ahead, Julia. Yeah. And right. for you, exactly. history has confirmed exactly. it. You know what I mean? So we don't live in a vacuum. We're not born, you know, and immediately get a fresh start. You know, right. we're, like, immediately told stories through a, a billion different mediums. Um, and... <laughs> When, you know, when your stories are about the Holocaust from a young age, of course, you're going to have a different, a different baseline than (laughs) Mr. and Mrs. Whitebread over here. I mean, Ryder, (laughs) you you starred in horror movies. Mm -hmm. What, like, did you want to do that? Or was that just a job? Or was that like, oh, fuck yeah, I get, I get to be really scared for a long time. No, I loved it. I, I loved every second. I mean, th- this is this is the weird thing of, you know, why I, I was drawn to horror as a kid. And then as a teenager, after ingesting all of this literature, I got into horror films because I wasn't allowed to watch horror films under the age of 10. But oh, wow, the second yeah. I could pick whatever I wanted to watch, it was all horror all the time. And then, yeah, once I started working in the horror genre, really making the movie Cabin Fever, I became addicted to horror films. And um, and I think part of that was about controlling the fear, right? Mm. Like understanding why these movies made me feel this way and like, you know, it, it, learning how makeup effects were done. I was obsessed with all of that from a very young age. Um, so all throughout my adolescence, I was reading books on makeup effects and special effects and studying horror films and loving horror film music and all the ways that, that films manipulate us to scare the crap out of us. And I love being on the other side of that. Like mm. being a horror filmmaker, being a, a, a horror, an actor in horror films, it's so much fun. There's nothing scary about it. it you're completely <laughs> in control. And it's this, there's this, there's this delight in the idea that you're going to hopefully make people pee their pants you know right. like that is it's and and I, and I think in some ways film is more visceral in that regard right and i think that's why it was an easy migration for me from literature to film in terms of as a horror uh consumer because I, film happens to you 
you know, it's something that is, it's, it's an experience outside that you, you either, you can look away, but it's going on. Um, whereas with a, a book with literature, you happen to the book, you know, you have to, it's your own imagination that keeps it going. Um, but I always, you know, and I think there's differences there. I'm not sure like all of them, but, um, I want to, I, I thought we should talk to a screenwriter because um, I think that there is a difference between the experience of a horror movie and a horror book. Mm -hmm. And these days, I think more people watch horror movies than read horror books. Yeah, for sure. It seems like, you know, it's, we're, we're much more of an image based um, culture right now. Um, And so somebody I wanted to talk to is this great writer, C. Robert Cargill. He's a novelist um, and a screenwriter. He's best known for the movies Sinister. He wrote Doctor Strange. And then recently he had um, a new movie called The Black Phone, which is an adaptation of a Joe Hill short story. And it is scary he's a great as writer. shit. <laughs> I haven't seen it. I can't wait. But he, he's a great writer, but he's also an expert on all things horror because uh, he, he actually began as a film critic. So, as someone who's written horror fiction and horror movies and horror criticism, I wanted to talk to him about the differences and the similarities between the forms and, and then what makes horror function in general. There's something about horror writers where you always expect them to be like these, you know, dark, brooding, you know, scary people. And they're just the nicest, kindest, warmest, you know, most childlike human beings on the planet. What, what is that about the writers of the, of the genre? It is baked into what horror is. Uh, Joe Hill puts it best. Um most people think horror is about extreme sadism. Horror isn't about extreme sadism. It's about extreme empathy. The whole key to horror is in order for the audience to feel scared, they have to empathize with the characters. They have mm-hmm. to feel them. And so in order to be a horror writer, you have to be able to empathize with these characters, create these characters that the audience will fall in love with and will suddenly feel sheer terror that something's going to happen to. Right. And so what you have is an entire subgenre of people who are all very empathetic people mm. and who are always open to listening and be and understanding people. And when you get a bunch of those people together, they're going to be awesome. And right. so that's, I mean, that's really what it is. Horror is not an aesthetic. It's a concept of, of storytelling in which you're supposed to, I mean, really there are two offshoots of horror. When we talk about horror, there are two types of horror. And I kind of, you know, uh, you've got the kind of creep show, uh, creep show, twilight zone, outer limits uh, element of it. Sure. And then you've got like the Stephen King element of it. And, and one side of it is empathy and one side is catharsis. Right, and, and right. This is, this is something that a lot of people, um, you know, don't quite understand about. Yeah. Like, why are why, why are the characters so bad in these Friday the Thirteenth movies? And it's like because you're not supposed to empathize with them. You're supposed to enjoy watching them get cut up. Like that's mm-hmm. the whole point of that. It's the catharsis of watching the jackass jock get yep. it in the end. Right. Yeah. Whereas, right. Whereas this other branch of horror is you're supposed to be scared for this family that moves into this creepy house and that 
things start getting going bump in the night and you have to care about those characters and you have to like them and want to see yourself in their place. Wow. Um, yeah. And, and, and once you wrap your head around that, you understand that this is what most horror is. Right. Um, and, and so all of these people, yeah, horror is the best community in the world. The fans, the writers, the directors, the, the, the prop makers, like everyone in horror just loves it. And, you don't run into a lot of jackasses in the horror community. And when you do, they get run out on a rail. Right. Like yeah. when, when someone pops up and turns out to be abusive or, uh, you know, you know, horror has been running people out for much longer than me, too. I mean, that's, that's really. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, yeah. We, we don't tolerate creeps lightly. Yeah. And um, and it's all goes back to that whole empathetic nature of of writing horror. It also seems like there's a really high value placed on fun in horror. Like the, mm -hmm. the joy and the pleasure of horror is really unadulterated and really like unapologetic. I find both in movies and books. Yeah. I mean, that also comes from the, 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 the fandom, you know, we, you mm -hmm. know, black shirts were ostracized for so long, you know, uh, to the point that they were referred to as black shirts in the film community <laughs> as these weirdos who obsess over these old movies. Um, and because they were ostracized and found their tribe, there is a certain joy of celebration of being with your tribe and celebrating those things together in a way that you don't have in a lot of other genres. Mm -hmm. um, right. So like you have, you know, one of my favorite times of year is going on right now, which is Friday nights. Um, uh, in the spring when Joe Bob Briggs has his live show that plays every, you know, on shutter uh, because all of a sudden tens of thousands of horror fans all over the world all kind of get together on social media and watch the same two movies together mm. and talk about it and celebrate it. And you get to have those weird moments where he announces a film that most people haven't seen, but you have and go, Oh, strap in mutants. This is going to rock. Right. You're about to, you are about to see Sam Jackson in death by temptation. And you have no idea what you're in for. And you have those kind <laughs> of uh, you, you get that, that community vibe and people talking about it and celebrating it together. But yeah, there is a big focus in horror on enjoying those fun elements. Mm -hmm. um, some of the best screenings I've ever been to were at Fantastic Fest uh, at a midnight horror the best festival ever. Yes. Oh my God. Where you've <laughs> so got a, fun. You've got a packed theater of 200 yeah. people hooting and hollering along with this, this movie. And so. Well, it's, it's an adrenaline rush too. You know, there, there is like that feeling of, you know, and that, and that, and that's something I, I I'm curious about, you know, there, there's a visceral quality to horror film, you know, the, the, the jump scare or the gross out or, you know, the, 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 the tingling of the back of your neck as somebody's mm -hmm. walking around a corner and you're not sure what they're going to see. And I'm curious, having written both fiction and screenplays, um, like, can you articulate the, the different types of fear or the different types of scare that you approach those different mediums with? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really there's, there's, um, there are two real hardcore fear elements and that's terror and shock. Um, yeah. you know, terror is that creeping feeling that something bad is going to happen. It's suspense, but it's not, it, it, it's an elevated level of suspense. Suspense doesn't quite cut it. Mm -hmm. Um, it is, it is, Oh God, something is there. I don't know what it is. Something's coming. I'm going to get, you know, it's being scared without there actually 
necessarily being the presence of something yet. You just know that it's coming. Right. Um, and then and you that, have, and that's your reptile brain, like saying yeah. that there's, <laughs> like, that's, that's the saber tooth tigers out there. Sure. Right. Oh, yeah, uh, right. what, one of, one of the most terrifying things somebody has said on the internet this year was somebody pointed out uh, something that had just never crossed everybody's mind, which is the uncanny valley. The fact that the uncanny valley exists is terrifying because clearly there was some point in history where evolution said, you need to be afraid of something that looks human, but isn't. Yes. That, yeah. That's a lot. When you start to think about that, that's a lot. Oh, oh, this is a self-defense mechanism. All right. All right. Uh, that's scary. Yeah. Um, then of course you have shock and shock is that you see something you see the thing it happens you don't know how to react to it and you react yeah. i mean the thing about the thing about film in particular but all art we don't really talk about it in these terms but we interact with art physically we yeah. do have a physical connection to these things. We think about it as more, well, no, it's intellectual. It's not physical. It's like, no, no, no. There are chemicals being released in your brain while you're experiencing this mm -hmm. thing. You right. play certain tones of music and it makes people feel uncomfortable. Um, you, you know, you, you show certain images and people get feel in a certain way. Yeah. Um, you, have things happen to characters and people experience it and get those feelings. You know, there's a reason why when you're feeling sick on a Sunday, you want to curl up in on the couch under a blanket and watch a happy movie, a romantic right. comedy or something, something, you know, is going to end in a good way and just fill your heart with that joy. And that's a physical sensation. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. It's also why people often, you know, start getting jaded about film the more they watch it. And you kind of see these people hit this, this plateau where they start thinking that everything's bad all of a sudden or everything's mediocre. And it's like, you aren't getting that fix anymore. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> right. right. Yeah. And it's like you become the, numb to all the, 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 the predict what now becomes predictable yeah. horror movie things. Right. So oh, we, something I'm curious about because your movies are very visual, obviously sinister, but then also Dr. Strange has these crazy, mm -hmm. crazy, like uh, just beautiful and strange visuals. Uh, I'm curious, like, what comes first? Are you thinking, are you thinking story and then we'll fill in something cool here? Or do you have like nightmares visions and then try and connect the dots with logic? It's a little of both. Um, Scott's yeah. the hypervisual one. Uh, yeah. He's far more sure. visual than I am. Uh, that's not to say that I haven't come up with my share of these crazy visuals, but he's the, he's the most visual one and he comes up with a lot of the stuff. Um, and sometimes he'll just come up with stuff. He's like, I got this great, crazy idea and he'll pitch it to me. And oftentimes I'll be like, uh, I don't I get it. it. <laughs> <laughs> and he'll be like, I'll write it down and you'll get it. And he writes it and I go, Oh, Oh, I see this. Yes. It's it, you know, he's just so good at that, but sometimes, yeah, you do, you do have a visual, uh, in mind and in sinister in particular, I mean, it came from a nightmare. It was literally one of those stories where I had a nightmare. I had seen the ring. Uh, I had been up for 24 mm -hmm. hours. I was exhausted. I took an hour and a half nap. Um, and uh, during that nap, I had this terrifying nightmare of going up into my attic, finding a box uh, with a projector and a bunch of Super 8 movies. And I spool one up and it's the opening shot of Sinister. Mm. Um, and that dream haunted me for weeks and it, the image wouldn't go away. And I was like, all right, there's got to be a story here. So I literally built Sinister around that image and that idea. 
uh, and, you know, worked on it and workshopped it just on and off for years and, you know, bounced it off my friends until I finally years later would pitch it to Scott uh, and, and it became sinister. Uh, but uh, so, yeah, sometimes you start with that image, but yeah. for me, mostly I start with, you know, story concept and characters and I build out from there mm-hmm. um, and, tr- you know, uh, try to find what, what's scary about it, where the fear is, what, you know, and then I, you know, well, what would be great here? What would, how, how do you, cause then you get, you start the sandbox and you get to play around. You're like, all right, mm-hmm. well, here are my rules. Here's my characters what's the coolest fucking thing that could happen here? Right, and then you start right. like going and, and picking up that. Yeah. yeah. And, and like, oh, this would be rad and this would be cool and this would be scary. And, oh, that would be terrifying. And you start playing around with that and getting all that to uh, uh, to function within the script. But I, I am always somebody who's always trying to keep the integrity of the logic and the characters tied together. Right. Um, uh, it's it's one of the frustrating things for me because I want to love dream logic horror movies more and I have a hard time <laughs> yeah, with it unless yeah. they go completely bonkers because I'm always right there with the logic and I'm like, well, why didn't you just do this? And why right. are you doing that? And I'm all fan. That's yeah. why for, for me, the scariest book I've ever read is The Girl Next Door because mm. it makes perfect logical sense. <laughs> oh, is, I, is this the... Uh, the the, uh, the Jack um, Ketchum book? Yeah, Jack Ketchum. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Graham Jones had us read it. He was on the show, and I, I was like, afterwards, I was like, "Well, Stephen's no longer my friend." Number one, and number two, <laughs> I, I, that book, I can't have that book in my house. Yeah, well, I'm not and have it in my house. To go back to your point too, so I these guys know, but I'm a professional improviser, and I've done improvised horror movies. And the hardest thing about them is keeping the justification of why any justifications of why people would stay in this situation and not. <laughs> take one of infinite avenues out of it. So tell us about adapting the, the Joe Hill story. Was there, was that a difficult process or was, you know, because it's just a short story and you have to extend it into a, a whole movie and, and visualize it. Right. So was there any, anything difficult or fun about that? Well, I mean, it, Black Phone is an oddity in terms of uh, it's, it's one of those really strange things. Scott had discovered the, the story over a decade ago. And as soon as we finished Sinister, we started looking for the next thing. We really had a great time working together. It was going to be a trial basis to see if we worked out as writing partners. And Scott, two weeks in, was like, I've never had an experience like this. Will you just be my writing partner? And I was like, hell yeah, I'll do that. And so, um, you know, he brought me the black phone and said, uh, do you think, uh, what do you think about this? I think this is one of the best short stories I've ever read. I said, it's a great short story but it's really thin. Like we'd have to add a lot to it. There's a lot of work we'd have to do. And at this point, I think we have so many ideas. We've been bouncing around off each other. Uh, I don't know why we don't write one of those instead of paying to, uh, you know, adapt a a story that we have to put the same amount of work into. And he agreed. And so it just became one of those things that every two, three years, Scott would be like, Hey, um, what about, black phone. And I was like, oh, this doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. And then one night we were talking and he had been going through therapy and had been dealing a lot with his childhood and realizing just how messed up his childhood was. And he hadn't really cognized that. And finally was like, oh man, I, I went through some crazy stuff uh, when I was a kid. And he asked me, he's like, Hey, would you I just kind of want to make some low budget thing? you know, uh, that just kind of excises the demons of my childhood. I kind of want to make like a 400 blows type of movie. Um, you know, uh, 
would you want to make that with me? And I said, absolutely. It doesn't have to be genre or anything like that, but we've been kicking around black phone for a while. And what if we took that film about the resiliency of youth that you want to make about your childhood and have that fill in all the blanks of black phone. And Scott's like, Holy shit. That's that's a movie. I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, the key to, again, going back to that core element of empathy, you've got to be able to empathize with people. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, people like to see themselves on screen. That's one of the big conversations we're having right now about representation in in films and books and people want to see themselves. And so really what, what it makes, what it comes down to is when you're telling stories, you're looking for the lowest common denominators with your audience. You're looking for those things we all have in common. And the one thing everyone shares in common was we were all kids once and being right, kids right. kind of fucking sucks. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it's terrifying uh, often. It is. I mean, you're confused by the world. You don't know what's real or what's not. You right. know, Santa Claus could be there. You know, yeah, it's mm-hmm. all, yeah. Your perception taller. Your perception yeah. of time is different. You're, yeah. uh, you have all these chemicals doing, forcing these changes on your body that have nothing right. to do with, you know, rational thought. Um, you know, we found that, uh, um, uh, that at the age of 26, your brain kind of stops growing and creating memories in the way that it did beforehand. And that's why, you know, the girl that broke your heart in high school is so much more profound, a, a life-defining thing than that person you had a 15 year relationship with, and then broke up with in your thirties. Um, you know, <laughs> the, the way our brains are wired to learn from that, creates these really profound connections. And that's very easy to exploit in, uh, in storytelling, uh, because we all remember that, you know, you can shorthand, uh, the quiet shy kid getting his heart broken by the popular girl in school in a way that everyone, everyone who just heard that sees a version of that in their own mind. They have that. I didn't even have to describe the characters very well or anything. We've all seen it or experienced it. And so because we all share that, it becomes very easy to make connections with those characters that we can then get very scared for. Um, And also the other thing about childhood is there's a lot of your agency removed. A kid can't just go, fuck it. I'm moving to another town. I'm out of here. This house is, <laughs> right. this house is right. bullshit. Right. If your parents go, you're making this up. You're scared of the dark. There's nothing in your closet. What do you do? You have right. no power. Oh, you know, yeah, you and, have to sleep in that same bed every night. And oh, so right. all, all of that creates the perfect confluence for a great conduit of storytelling of that everyone can identify with. And that puts characters into situations like, as you were talking about, Julia, that, that, that passes that logic test that, mm-hmm. uh, that definitely, mm-hmm. you know, uh, why aren't they leaving? Well, because they're 13 years old and their parents think their parents think they're full of shit. That's yeah. right. Right. Um, right. And, and so, so that's why children and storytelling just uh, in horror in particular really works. Yeah. yeah. Nobody yeah. believes kids. That no. that's a truth of our culture <laughs> that we don't like trust kids, treat them as fully human, believable little people um and that works great you're right because children are, are a bunch of fucking liars that's why <laughs> <laughs> and and the thing is is in children are cruel that's the other right. thing is you can yeah. really, you hey, can really right. have some great bullies and antagonists in childhood stories in a way that don't that doesn't totally track uh, right. as adults um because you can have just pure unbridled cruelty and people will go yeah no i know that kid yeah, kids are terrible. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean the the one element that we haven't talked about that why we love it, um, I think that needs to be addressed is one of the great things about horror is it lets us take our fears 
and materialize it in a way that we can look it in the eye and maybe even punch it in the face. Mm-hmm. Like it, horror really does allow us to crystallize that stuff. It's, it is one of the greatest metaphorical versions of storytelling we have, you know, with Sinister, one of the, the cores of it is that deep seated fear parents have that what their kids are watching is going to fuck them up. You know, right. that's baked into Sinister. And that's part of what scares the crap out of people about Sinister is that whole, the kids aren't all right. And it's yeah. because they watched the wrong movie. Um, that is something that people are scared of. And you get to confront that right. and you get to be scared by it. And then you get to laugh about it and you get to, you know, think about it a bit and then move on. Uh, yeah. And addressing our fears is an important part of who we are. And, uh, and so that's part of the reason we keep going back to that. Well, it's not only just emotional, visceral storytelling, but it also, there's a lot of thought that goes into great horror. You know, it's not just a guy in a mask chasing, uh, teens at a camp. It's, you know, it's hereditary. It's, you know, about the dissolution of a marriage. It's, you know, um, you know, it's about grief. It's about, you know, uh, catharsis. It's, it's about all the great things that we deal with in drama and in storytelling, but we get to put a monster in it. So it can be fun at the same time and doesn't feel like homework. So Cargill had so many amazing points and he really has thought a lot about these things, but you know, that, that, the point that he made about childhood, and we keep coming back to this, right, is that horror seems inseparable from your childish imagination. And so I guess the question is, are we still scared by horror? Do you guys get scared by horror movies, by horror books anymore? Because I don't. I'm trying to think of the last time I watched a movie that truly hmm. scared me or read a book. Like I said, I don't think I mean, a book hasn't scared me since I was eight or nine well um, uh, you gotta read scared by movies anymore you gotta read the only good indians by stephen graham jones <laughs> yeah um the only good indians by stephen <laughs> graham jones is the first horror novel i've read well since he made us read um the girl next door um oh, that's true that but that didn't scare me that that mortified me the only good indians by stephen graham jones is the first piece of fiction that has scared me since i was a kid but I, you know, the things that really scare me now, like in the books that we've even just read on the show, is something like Five Days at Memorial, which is the story of that hospital during Hurricane right. Katrina where they had to start killing the patients because they didn't have food and water. Like that to me is like, mm-hmm. oh my, like, like that's something that could happen to me. I could be in a hospital and they just start saying, well, let's kill the loud guy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, nonfiction. Yeah, when I think this is several years ago now, but when I first read Helter Skelter, mm. that was a big scare. That was a right. big scare. But see, we're getting more into crime um, territory. Yeah, and yeah. So, like, what do you? When I was know. The last time you read, like, but I, I yeah. movies have scared me. So for me, yeah, I would love a really scary book because I keep trying. You know, I keep trying to scare myself with fiction, but they always feel kind of lame or like the distance is too much in my brain. Um, but movies, like when you change, 
you know, like uh, when I became a parent, a whole new field of stuff scared me. So it's kind of like you have to grow with the horror or you have to come back to things that are scary. Um, but it's true. The bar gets higher and higher. And but but that makes each scare like true scare. Chasing the so dragon of good. horror. Like when you, you don't know, think you can the, be scared. The Haunting of Hill House scared me. <laughs> like there was an episode of that. I think mm-hmm. the... Um, the episode where they're at the funeral home with the the dead sister, that episode scared me. <laughs> like I, I was watching that in bed at two o'clock in the morning and I was like, I'm gonna continue watching this in the daytime. But yeah, it's like it's so deep in your soul what scares you that you kinda have to search around and find it. You have to like, you know, have some bad bad experiences to like build up that tolerance to be scared again. What about you, Ryder? You can't be scared anymore. You think? And I'm. I, I still. I still seek it out, um, and I still enjoy jump scares in movies. But uh, yeah, you know, I. I. I, sh- I should really try and find some good horror novels out there or horror short stories because I think you know, just preparing for this show, reading Shirley Jackson was the most scary thing I had read in a long time, and that was. It's less of a terror, or you know, it's it's more of a creeping discomfort. It's more of, you know, and, and it's also something, it's not just personal, it's kind of cultural, right? Like that, that, that the world, uh, that the world is full of bad people or that there's scary things out there that we can't quite wrap our heads around that unknown. Because I think, I think when horror books and horror movies, the real fun is when you don't know what's happening, right? When you know what's happening, when you know that it's, uh, the the haunted hotel or the the dead the girl that died in the well, uh, suddenly it becomes less scary, right? Then it's something that's objectified, sort of outside, and you can deal with that monster. I always like the first half of horror films, the you know up until the midpoint, um, where you're just yeah before it gets explained. I think that's the sweet spot. And so what I love about Shirley Jackson is that she stays there, and, and I think that those are my you know. And I need to investigate more horror that kind of does that because I find that fascinating. Well, I, I think you know I've brought him up now a couple times. I think Stephen Graham Jones does that better than anybody right now. I mean, you really need to read the Only Good Indians writer. It, it it's fantastic, um, but you know, I figured if he's the only person that can scare me. He's impenetrable, right? Like, there's nothing scares Stephen Graham Jones. And listeners, if you want, go back and listen to the episode where he he made us read um, The Girl Next Door, if you want to hear the three of us screaming in horror. Um, but we, uh, we gave Stephen a call and asked him to tell us um, what still scares him. And he, he picked some scenes from uh, some pretty scary books. The first of these five scary scenes that I've read is from Sarah Gran in her novel, Come Closer. I forget which chapter or page number, any of that, but probably about two-thirds of the way through, this woman who increasingly thinks she might be possessed by a demon or her house may be infested by a demon or she may be haunted or something scary. She's at a meeting in one of those kind of conference rooms with a long table, and she for some reason looks under the table, maybe she drops a pen or something, and someone kind of across the way from her, across the table, goes down as well. And in the privacy under the table, this person opens their mouth and it stretches 
abnormally wide, really the, like the, the chin comes really low and it's really terrifying. Up until that moment in the book, we've been kind of keeping alive the possibility that this is, this is all in the character's head. When that jaw drops like that, then, you know, your jaw as a reader drops with it. The next scariest scene in a movie for me, in a movie, in a book for me, it's probably from Paul Tremblay's Head Full of Ghosts. There's a, a bit in it, I want to say it's probably about a third of the way through, maybe, where the big sister, who is exhibiting symptoms of possession, also symptoms of um, psychological problems, you never really know, it, um, she's sitting at the table with her family eating something, I forget what they're eating, but she starts to kind of throw up really calmly, if that's the way you can throw up, where this thin vomit is just leaking out of her mouth as she sits there and I've read a lot of throwing up on the page I've written a lot as well but I don't think I've ever done it this spookily as Paul does in A Head Full of Ghosts. Next I would say Whitley Stryber's Majestic, his novel Majestic or I don't know novel he builds them as nonfiction, and maybe they are who knows it's the follow-up to communion and in majestic he talks about how somehow he has this information i forget how he has this information but when you're attracted to someone kind of out of the blue it's not you know love at first sight it's not some random arbitrary thing the reason you're attracted to this or that person it's that aliens have come and sprinkled kind of pixie dust on you and this other person so y'all are just magnetically drawn together because they they have like a breeding program or something i don't really remember but um this to me is just absolutely terrifying and it has completely messed up every decision i ever make because i no longer feel like i am completely in control i always have to allow that maybe i want to do this or maybe it's the aliens making me do this which can get quite confusing as far as you know trying to get through the world next up fourth poppy z bright's exquisite corpse it's there's a scene in that i want to say it's probably about three quarters of the way through where a couple of people kill a homeless guy down in new orleans i believe it is i say a homeless guy i think it's a homeless kid actually a teenager runaway and you know it's a it's not just a horror novel it's like a horror novel times 10 it's pretty intense that book and they're carving into this this corpse they've made and they start finding these kind of i don't know what to call them these stubby white tapered at the end tapeworms maybe flatworms i'm not sure they're really really gross and um it could be that they're looking to eat this kid. I forget completely. Or I repressed it. I'm not sure. But that completely grossed me out. And it has never, never left me. I don't recommend that scene. I think if you start seeing that scene and you're reading Exquisite Corpse, just like jump ahead a couple pages. And the last one is a chapter from a book y'all have read. The Girl Next Door, Jack Ketchum. It's that really short chapter. Man, what number is it? I would guess it's like 41. I don't know. It's, it's, it's on up there. And I was on a panel with someone a few years ago, and people, somebody asked us, what's the scariest thing you've ever read? And the guy beside me on the panel, he talks about this chapter, but he talks about how majestically and uncomfortably 
Jack Ketchum describes every motion of what's going on, every little aspect, all the sensory details and everything. And I had to, I was next in line to say my piece and I had to, um, you know, regrettably tell the dude that that was all in your head. What Jack Ketchum does for the totality of that chapter is say, I believe I'm not going to tell you this part or he, he somehow keeps it private, but it's, this has been a novel that has not flinched so far. And this is not a flinch either. This is more of a, um, ethical decision. He doesn't want to sensationalize this thing that is happening to Meg. I believe it is tied up in the basement by these kids and this, this woman, Ruth. So he kind of pans away from it. And he, he says, you don't get to read this part. I've, I've got this in my head. I'm not going to put it in your head. I'm not going to demean Meg in that way. So it's both, it's at once respectful. And it's also really sticky, you know, it gets in your head in a, in a bad way, which in horror is a good way. And that's my five. Literary Disco is produced, edited, and music supervised by Jordan Katz. Justin Alvarez is our producer for Lit Hub Radio. You can reach out to us directly on Twitter, at Literary Disco. Happy reading, everybody. Thanks for listening.